This is Let's Keep It Real with Sandy Joy Weston, your weekly dose of positivity with awesome stories and guests from all over the world. It's an opportunity to learn some great new things and expand your mind. We'll tackle topics from all areas of life, and as always with Sandy, the sky's the limit. Oh my goodness. Let's keep it real, people. Before I bring him on, if you're watching, you can see the Michael Hudson. <laughs> oh my God. I was like so excited. I was like a little kid at Christmas. Like, Michael's coming on. Michael's coming on. You were too kind. But before we get into that, I'm going to ask Michael when I ask every single one of my guests if you had one word to best describe your past 30 days, any word, good, bad, or ugly, what would the word be and then why? Powerful. And it would be powerful because in this journey I'm on of unlocking this path to help people unlock their their message, um, the last 30 days have been really kind of a pivotal point, uh, emergence of a lot of clarity. Ooh. And an awareness through some more testing of the messaging as to how much it does in fact resonate. And so it's, it's been a powerful 30 days. So Michael, now that we know that let's tell them how we met, <laughs> which I was just at a fundraiser, fundraiser like that fundraiser. <laughs> Same thing. <laughs> yeah. Raise up people. And somebody knew I, you know, what I'd been doing. They said, Oh, I heard you went through the, HPS course. Mm -hmm. And what did you think of it? And I told him, you know, I'm a fan. I loved it. I learned so much. The people are great. It went way deeper than I thought. Mm -hmm. Besides taking up my keynote, I had no idea what we're going to get into, which was perfect for this, my life. And then she said, well, you already spoke. Could you have done that in a week? And I was like, no, (laughs) for many reasons. But it made me think of you coming on today because you talk a lot about your true story. And I I saw this as one of the first things that, you know, you had as one of your tips. Sometimes we get into them, sometimes we don't. But when I told my peeps about you, it actually resonated with this. When you say your true story is the one you struggle with, they had so many questions about that. Yeah. And the biggest question is because let me back up about what I say. And it it actually is something that Michael and Amy say too all the time. In order for me to tell my story, whether it's a keynote, workshop, wherever, you have to be on the other side of it. Absolutely. And for me, I never thought of it that way, but I felt, and this is the questions they had, that if I was telling the story to people, I wanted to come from a place of power and Mm -hmm. strength and serving them and not feeling like I still was in like a a victim mode. I wanted to be able to tell the story and because I'm repeating it over and over again, feel as if it was serving me and my audience from a place of strength. And so the questions that were flooding in for you is how do you know that they wanted to know number one and number two, they see people over and over again, telling their story. And it doesn't feel that way. It feels like they're hearing, Oh my God, 
feel bad for me, poor me. So it's like a two part uh, question, but let's just break down the first part of it. How do you know you're on the other side of it? How do you know you're coming from power? It was the biggest question. It's, it's a fabulous question. And you know, I, I'm one who hates it when everybody says it's a fab, but it is a fabulous question because it is the most difficult thing to recognize. And Mm. yet when you're there, you stop wondering because you know, and I know that sounds what that's nice, Michael, wonderful. And how it just happens, you know, it's to the point you make about your HPS journey. It takes time. (laughs) <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and I mean, if we, if we simplify this, okay, let's, let's try to simplify it to make it really approachable, no matter where you're coming from. Mm-hmm. Think about there being, you know, there's five stages of grief. There's kind of three stages of this process. I would argue, you know, stage one is recognizing how did it impact you really? And how have you let it impact you? Now that's going to feel judgmental and harsh, but I'm just going to invite your listeners to let that in. Because we have things that happened to us that impacted us. And we've built a story around that impact that we own. And, you know, we almost medicate ourselves with that story by the way that we keep telling ourselves and building the comfort about it. But what is in fact true about story when we tell our own story to ourselves, we tell it pretty consistently. Well, Don't we all know by now that if we keep repeating the same thing over and over and over, we begin to own it so much so that we've ignored some of the details that aren't in it. Does that make sense, Sandy? Yes. Oh, my God. Perfect sense. And so so when we do that, we haven't done the work. And, you know, this sounds judgmental, right? But, you know, phase one is that, right? We have to do that. We've got to get past that. You know, my own case, just to contextualize this for the audience, you know, I... I was raped and molested for a year when I was 10 by someone who threatened to kill me if I ever told anyone. Mm. I had one thing I wanted to do in my life. I had seen a professional speaker for the first time when I was in second grade. And I thought, that is the most phenomenal job I, I, possible. I mean, I know I'm in second grade, right? But I don't want to be the fireman. I don't want to be that. I wanted to be that guy. Wow. Now, the guy's name was John Jimenez. He was a recovering heroin addict. He walked to the front of the class of the room and wearing his jeans and his t-shirt. And he began to tell the story of his journey into drug abuse, Mm. complete through the recovery. And then the falling back into it and discovering himself leaning against the telephone pole one morning, watching a house, waiting for the lights to go off as the family left for work. So he could go rob it to get his next fix. And that was the moment for him that he realized, I can't keep doing this. Well, I saw that. And because it was at a time in my life where some stuff was happening in my life, because in addition to what I shared a moment ago, I was bullied because I was the cop's kid. My dad had the misfortune that he would periodically arrest parents of people I went to school with. That didn't make them happy or like me. (laughs) No, no. I was also the fat kid, you know, so I, I, I went through all that stuff. And so I saw that. It's like, wow, how can he get up there and do that? But the other thing, Sandy, for me was for the first time in my life, instead of being the ADHD type kid I was and tapping people on the shoulder so they'd look the other way, all that crap, I was riveted listening to this guy. And I thought, how can you do that? I've got to figure that out. Now, that said, what happened to me silenced me for decades. I didn't get past my fear of speaking in public till I was in my mid-20s. 
Mm. And, and, and I share all that because I had told myself the story. Now, the story I had told myself was, you're never going to think about this again. Yeah. You're going to pretend it didn't happen. Or you're dead. And, and that you are now bruised and scarred for life. That you are now asking yourself questions about what this did to you and how this changed you that you can't answer. So you're going to ignore them. And yeah. that's why I make the comment that the story is slightly medicative because it was medicative to me in allowing me. Now, my medication was actually sugar. When I needed to calm down, when I was feeling it, whenever that story started to emerge, I lived a tenth of a mile from a little corner store. My grandmother was wonderful in keeping this little jar of change. I'm old enough, Sandy, that, you know, the candy did cost five cents. <laughs> And, you know, I could go pick up a quarter and go down yeah. and buy a handful of candy. I could eat it and I'd be okay. So. And so to, to get back to, to the point, right? So that's stage one. Stage two is when something happens and you are awakened to the fact that that story isn't serving you anymore. For me, I was 33 years old. I was sitting in an endowed chair at Cornell University leading a university-wide program. And all of a sudden... I was supposed to get on a plane one morning and I sat on the edge of the bed in my apartment and I could not move. Mm. I was convinced I was having a heart attack. I was convinced I was going to die. And all I knew was I can't go get on that plane. It's not happening. I don't care if it was the international business plan competition and I'm one of the three judges. I cannot leave this room. Wow. And that ended in tears for quite a while. And finally, a recognition, Michael, you're suffering from something. You need to go get help. Mm. Now, that was where I opened up the next phase. 13 sessions in, I got frustrated that he kept asking me questions and never telling me anything. And I'm not getting any better. You've met me. <laughs> you know I can be direct. <laughs> so I walk into the third. I walked into the 13th session and he asks his opening question. And I said, not today. I said, you haven't said a word to me. I'm not getting better. This is not helping. And he then said, well, there's a problem. You've told me your entire story and there's a missing piece. And he said, I'm not accusing you of lying. He said, but have you really told me everything? I said, absolutely. He said, well, here's the problem. Everything you've spoken about reflects what we call victimology. And you have never, ever identified an incident where you were a victim. And Sandy, this will resonate with your older listeners more than your younger ones. It was as though at that moment, he reached inside my head and pressed the play button on a VCR that played the worst episode of what happened to me for over a year, mm. literally in living color. And I sat there on the couch for two hours and just in tears. And he said, I'm going to leave you, give you some time. I'll drop back in and check on you. Feel free to leave if you want, if you want to stay and talk. I've got to go to two other patients, clients. Uh -huh. um, and I sat there for two and a half hours and he came back in and I said, I just think I need some space right now. But, you know, so that was kind of stage two for me because that was the moment when I kind of realized this story you've been telling yourself, this way you've been medicating yourself. And I wasn't as aware of that description as I was. Yeah, I yeah, I it. But it was, you know, something's wrong. This is, this is crippling you and it's in your way. 
Now, just to be clear, Sandy, I was 33 at that time. Yeah. I didn't get done doing the work on this until I was 55. And in fact, I didn't fully figure it out until I was 60. Now, one of my goals in life is to make sure other people don't go through all that pain and agony that I went through between 33 and 55 and 60 and the pain I went through between 10 and 33 that got me in that place in the first time. And so to your question of how do I know I'm past it, the third stage is you've done the work. Yeah. You have allowed yourself to confront that. You figured out, here's how I was telling that story. Here's where that story is working for me. Here's where that story is not working for me. Here is what I have, the lesson I have earned from that crucible moment of my life that I can share with someone else. And if I can find a way to pivot to that, all of a sudden, all that pain feels worth it. And, and that's, you know, that, that's where my basic premise for all my work comes from. We all travel a journey. That journey has a few crucible moments in it that put us through the test. They may, there, are most, there are darkest times. There are most difficult challenges. But in going through those and coming out on the other side, we earn lessons in our bones that can help other people. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why we're on the planet. Yeah. So to me, that's how you know you're past it. When one, you've acknowledged it. You've recognized the story I'm telling myself wasn't serving me. You've reached a point where you've said, okay, how could it better serve me? What am I missing? What have I been hiding? What have I been putting into it to medicate myself? And what's the real lesson I earned in that moment? Mm. And, you know, there's such a range of things you could earn. We don't need to try to delineate them. But so if your listeners that ask that question, what are the lessons you earned? What do you do differently now because you had that experience that people who haven't had that experience don't understand? How does it shape who you are and the way you walk the planet in a way that you can see other people who may be suffering from the same thing you were dealing with, who just need you to let them know it's okay? There is a path beyond. Does that does that all make sense? And that's a long answer to your question, but no, it isn't. And it 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 actually it makes perfect sense. And although I knew your story and we've hung a few times in fun atmospheres, <laughs> the whole, no, I still don't know, but I didn't know a lot of pieces of that. And I appreciate you sharing sure. with, our, with me and the listeners. And but- by the way, I don't want to say this gratuitously, Sandy, but if any of your listeners, if you experienced that, I am so sorry you went through that. Yeah. Uh, and I'm so glad. I you- only share it because I want you to realize it doesn't define us. It yeah. shapes us and it can shape us in a powerful way if we let it, or it can keep us trapped in a horrible place if we let it, but we have the choice. Yeah. Michael, I want to just circle back because I know there's going to be a few questions about this. And if you don't mind, just dive in a little deeper. Sure. What you meant when you said, he said, I've heard your story, but he called it victimology. Mm-hmm. I I didn't understand a little bit of what that meant. Like what was missing and he called why technology. So now we get to a deeper issue, right? And you and I talked about this before we started recording, right? There are three stories we all have. We have the story we tell ourselves. We have the story we tell the people closest to us. And we have the story we tell the world. In those days, the only story anyone ever heard from me is the story we tell the world. Now think about the story we tell the world. How and why is that story created? First of all, it's created to make us look good. 
in whatever way we want to look good in that moment. So, you know, here's the guy. To, so let's go to the, you know, let's go in the room. Okay. He's asking me all these questions. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the fact that I built a nationally recognized program at University of Illinois that got me the opportunity to come do the same thing at Cornell. I'm talking about the fact that I won a teaching award that's for the people with under 10 years experience in my profession, and I won it my fourth year, and that's the youngest anybody had ever won it. I'm telling all my great stories. Oh, I and, and, I, and I'm positioning how fucking wonderful I am. If Thomas needs to take that out, he can. We're good. We're good. <laughs> but, but, you know, I, I'm telling the story we tell the world. And it's a story we try oh our best to live up to. Yeah. You know, it's not an it's not a lying story and it's not even an embellished story. Mm. But it's like the highlight reel from yeah. the sports from the sports person's career and it misses the fact that they got cut from their JV team. Yeah. You know, it's like the Michael Jordan story without the point that he got cut from the first basketball team he tried out for. Yeah. Yeah. And so as we tell ourselves that story, what are we missing? We're missing the fact that our behavior aligns with the way people who have been victims behave and engage. Ah, I got you. And so if you're the therapist counselor sitting there, you're going, wait a minute, this doesn't add up. This guy's like a superstar in the profession and career he's in, because that's the story I'm telling him. And yeah. I'm not lying. It's how it's, it's, it's the way my life was at that time. Yeah. Peace. But I'm also telling him about sitting on the edge of that bed and everything in me screaming, you cannot get on that plane today or you will die. In fact, if you get off this bed today, you may die. Yeah. Yeah. And he's saying what brings people to that moment is that they've had some sort of a victim experience. You know, I didn't mention being the fat kid. Now, at the time, I was the fat kid. I was just an adult version of the fat kid. <laughs> Because you know the rest of my story, right? When I finally unlocked it, I suddenly realized my sugar addiction put 50 pounds on my body. I carried from high school until I was 60 years old. Yeah. yeah. And then I unlocked the story, unlocked the meaning, realized what lessons I earned from that crucible moment. And all of a sudden, in less than six months, 80 pounds disappeared because I stopped eating sugar because I didn't need to be medicated anymore. So to your earlier question, very directly, how will you know when you're on the other side? You'll stop medicating yourself with whatever way you're doing that. Gosh. For some of us, it's drinking. For some of it's, you know, there's lots of other ways we can do that. We don't need to try to delineate that list. Michael, <laughs> that's amazing. I'm sitting here <laughs> shedding light onto a lot of the questions people have asked me, but also even for myself. And when you're tying it in with a story you tell yourself, the story you tell your close friends and the story you tell your world, right? Mm -hmm. What story, let me, let me say it this way. Aren't there certain people, even though you tell yourself the honest to goodness story, there's certain people you wouldn't share your story with because they don't have the capacity. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and that's another level of, you know, it's a discernment level that comes as you figure out who's your story for. Now, you've heard me say this before, and I think if I'm listening to this and I've never thought about doing this work or I'm sitting there and I'm thinking about it, you went, are you making this up? And I'm not. Suddenly people will cross your path and they will essentially raise their hand that they need to talk to you and they won't actually physically raise their hand. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I believe we all have an aura that we put out. Yeah. And that aura will begin to allow people to enter who didn't enter before 
Because when you're on the other side, you are so much different. You are so much more aligned. You are so much more at peace with yourself. And for a lot of us, and remember, I'm not a therapist. I'm not count. I'm not trained in this at all. I'm simply a guy who went through all this stuff, who was driven to how do I get to the other side? Yeah. Yeah. I'm a guy who saw a guy when he was in second grade, he watched a guy unveil his personal story and he instantly felt connected. And he instantly felt, I got to go do this because that guy is helping people. Yeah. Now, by the way, little side story there. It probably helped that at that time, my father as a state policeman was developing a drug education program. And I was spending my nights in the basement with him, helping him build these six display boards. Display board number one was if your children are using barbiturates, here's what you will deso- what you will see. If your mm-hmm. children are using marijuana, here's what you will find. If they are sniffing glue, here's what you will find. Mm-hmm. So I'm being exposed to this drug addictive thing at home, which may be part of why he resonated with me. My father's also then going out on the rubber chicken circuit, speaking about this to people. And occasionally we're being dragged along to eat the rubber chicken. And so oh I'm watching God. him. I, mean, I get the rubber chicken circuit. <laughs> Got to tell the people that don't understand that. Well, you know, the rubber chicken circuit is the is the nonprofit local things that have these dinners and they invite in speakers and they give them 15 or 20 minutes. But invariably, the food is not that good. <laughs> and, 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 and a lot of times it's pretty rubbery. And a lot of times it's chicken because chicken's cheap. <laughs> and, and that hasn't changed over the years. Yeah. No. Um, but, but, you know, so I had this exposure to these people doing this stuff to try to help people. And ah. I was driven to want to do it, but I couldn't. I mean, Sandy, I wrote five speeches across five years and entered the 4-H public speaking contest every year because I so desperately wanted to do it. And mm-hmm. every year, the day of the competition, I would magically be sick. No. Because I didn't have the guts to go walk on the stage and do it. But you Absolutely. wrote- I'd written a speech. I'd, I rehearsed it in front of the mirror like any little kid would think you're supposed to do, but I couldn't go to the competition. You know, then I reached the age where I was the guy who was the president of the association in, in 4-H, the, what they called the junior council. And we put the competitions on and I was supposed to MC the event. And I said, no, nah. I, I was dating a girl at the time and she had done it last year. I said, she'll do it again. She was fantastic. And fortunately, I had a person in my life at that point who was the county agent who said, no, you're going to do it. And I said, no, I'm not. She, he, she's, he said, and he took me aside. He said, look, I know why you're not doing it. He said, I've seen the last five years of entries. It's time for you to get up there, <laughs> you know, and, and that was a pivotal moment, you know, but it, it, it's just, that, that's a side note. I don't know why I went there. Sorry. <laughs> something, something you said took me there. <laughs> so Michael, what a journey. When you're sitting there and you you said, I, I'm writing my little notes here. It was 33 years old mm-hmm. in the 13th session mm-hmm. and that it took you to 55. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because what happened is I changed my medicative story. Yeah. And, and, and honestly, this is what I did. I went to a handful more therapy sessions and then I said, okay, I'm good. Because no. now I understand. Yeah, because what I what I convinced myself is, okay, yeah, that shit happened. It doesn't matter. It doesn't define who I am. Okay. I'm not, I'm not harming anyone with anything I'm doing because of it. I'm not harming myself with anything I'm doing because of it. So I'm good. Now I left the job. Yeah, I could see that logic. Yeah. I ran away from the job because I realized it was, I, I blamed the job. Yeah. yeah. I blamed the pressure of the job on what made this come to this head in me. And I walked away from the job and I was fine. 
you know, and for the next three or four years, I thought I was okay. Now, fortunately, then I was blessed to meet my wife. And asked that, that were you married at the time? Did you no, have no? I married the career. I'm a guy who married the career for the first 20 years of my my life, you know, after college. And um, you know, then I met her, and that certainly changed everything. But that also allowed me to stop worrying about it and stop thinking about it. Because now I was in a you know a meaningful, worthwhile relationship. Yeah. And so that became, if you will, the new medication that made me no longer need to self-medicate by changing the story and so forth. Um, and I was, again, I was back on the success track. Look, I, I think a lot of people do this. We chase awards, applause, and accolades to feel fulfilled. Yeah. To put, you know, putty in that gap that's in our, in our self-esteem in whether we think we belong. Um, we fake it till we make it a phrase that I hate, but I know we do. And I know I did. Yeah. Um, and and this is part of why I'm, you know, decided to commit to the work that I'm now committed to doing for as much longer as I get the privilege of being on the planet, because there is nothing like being fully alive. There is mm-hmm. nothing like knowing that what you're doing is on purpose and aligned with the passion, in my opinion, with the mission you were given when you were placed on the planet. And you know, that was a big change when I really got to that point. And I got there first in 2015, when one day I said, I got to stop doing this work. They like it, they're paying well, but it's not what's in here. Yeah. Now COVID hit and kind of took me off track on that for about three years. Uh, (laughs) But but then last May 20th happened, and I had this epiphany, and I realized it's time to get back to that work. Yeah. And so, you know, that's, I'm not saying any of this is easy and I'm not, please, if you're listening, please don't think I'm trying to suggest this is a simple journey. It took a long time for a reason. It's hard work. Yeah. But I do believe with everything in my being, there is a way to shortcut that work by doing the work, by acknowledging it sooner, by doing the work to unlock what were the lessons I earned. And some of those lessons are just for you. But your understanding that opens the door to you for you to help the people who are here to learn from you. And obviously, you know, you know, it, it goes without saying, Sandy, my target audience is people who want to get up and share their story. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the people I work with, you know, the people you, you've realized I'm at that. So you're kind of at that stage two of the three I laid out earlier. You've realized now I got, I, I got something here. I want to move past this. I know I can help others. You've become frustrated as I did. I I know you don't hear this story and I'll tell it quickly, but here's the day I realized in 2015, I had to do this. I'm leading a strategic planning session for a client and it's the sixth or seventh year I'm working with these people. There is one woman in the room who almost never says anything, but when we take a coffee break, she is immediately at my side and she's sharing the best ideas that aren't getting put in the conversation. We go to lunch. She invariably sits at my table on one side of me or the other. Great ideas. And good in that room, at that table group. On the way to dinner, she's always at my side. And I'm like, what is going on with this woman? Best ideas in the room. She's not speaking up. (laughs) And it was one of those times that, you know, whatever higher power being you choose to believe in is up to you. The one I believe in is God. And he smacked me in the head and said, you idiot, she's you. Ooh. And I, I, I mean, it, it hit me in the middle of that. And I flew home from that. It's a California client. 
I flew home and the entire time home, I'm thinking, what if she is me? Am I helping her or am I hurting her? Mm. And is the fact that I'm hiding that part of me from the rest of the world and never talking about it because it's only in the story I tell myself. Yeah. And, and really intimate people who don't even get the second, you know, they're not in the second story group. They're in that little story group that only they and you know, you know, that's that small handful of those people you'll tell anything. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and, and when I landed in Baltimore um, or Philadelphia, I got off the plane on the drive home. I said, okay, I'm done. I'm not going to keep doing the work that I've been doing because I need to share my story. And so that was 2015. I sold that business the next month <laughs> and got out of that work in that industry and started working on how do I tell the story? Mm. Now, to be clear, it took me two years. Yeah. Yeah. And I started that at HPS because if you remember back what I said earlier, I used a very specific word that men do not often use. I was not molested. I was raped and oh. molested. That's, that, you know, I never even thought about that, Michael. Well, they, they, you know, they don't. I mean, well, I was molested. And then, then, you know, the, then their buddies say, well, lots of us were. No, I'm sorry. Rape's a different act. Mm. And I became obsessed with that. So in 2017... I went to HPS live and I bought one of the five seats you could buy to be on the stage for 45 minutes being coached live to God. see what will happen when I use that word to an audience of 450 people and what happens, what you'd expect. Everybody leaned back. Some yeah. of them put their arms around themselves like they're hugging themselves or someone else or they're protecting themselves. Yeah. Some of them could no longer look at me. And some of them would look at someone, then look at me and look at someone and look at me like, you need to go talk to and help that person. 30 days later, I went to that client from 2015 and mm -hmm. did an all staff session. And I decided, okay, the day is the day I go public with a client. Mm -hmm. I didn't use the word rape. I just decided I'm going to go molested and go light the first time. The session ended, handful of people came up and talked to me. The woman I told you about a few minutes ago. Yeah is standing over in the corner and Sandy, she's doing this. You've never seen a human being be more uncomfortable than this woman was waiting for the people who are talking to me to leave the room. They're all going to lunch. She comes up, throws her arms around me, squeezes me harder than a human has ever squeezed me and begins, if you'll pardon the phrase, snot sobbing on my shoulder. <laughs> and when she finally calms down a bit, I gently push her back and I said, what's going on? And she very calmly says, well, first of all, I, I can't believe you do what you do and are able to after what you shared today. And I said, well, why? And she said, because that's my story. Mm. And that's when I became obsessed with, okay, I've got to go do the work and figure out what are the real lessons I've earned from that journey I've gone through and how can I find the doorway to help other people get comfortable taking the first step to unlock those. Mm. And that's, so that's yeah. how we got where we are today in the work that I'm doing. Yeah. You know, Michael, it's funny because I'm thinking about when you were saying about the work I'm doing before years ago, my, well, since I was in my twenties, I was fortunate enough to travel around the world to do speaking gigs, mm -hmm. but it was all wellness, fitness. Mm -hmm. I come in, I'm the keynote, I'm the, I can mm -hmm. raise I can shift the energy. I can get people who wouldn't dance, dance. And I was doing great. And yeah. then 
with the COVID, one of our dear friends and colleagues, Susan Sandler, said you mm-hmm. really should try HPS. And I'm thinking, well, you know, I'm not going to be really going out there that much. <laughs> now, why not? Yeah. You know, yeah. take my husband is going to do it. I had no idea that the process was going to ask me for stories about my life. Yeah. You, you, you know what I mean? I'm just oh, yeah, thinking, absolutely. I'm taking what I'm doing and pretty happy with it up the next level. Yeah. But let me tell you, as much as now I'm on the other side of it, the reason I'm bringing this up is because I went kicking and screaming. Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, yeah, I don't need to tell that story. And they would dig. No, I don't need to tell that story. No, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> I'll just do it. It'll be, you know, cathartic. Da, da, da. No, I'm good. I'm good. But finally, they're like, okay, just tell those stories a little bit out where you're already speaking and see mm-hmm. how they get. Yeah. And I always, you know, put a light you know, spin on it. And they were what resonated the most with the people. Absolutely. Vulnerability is the most powerful connection thing on the planet. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, there, there was a teacher in HPS before you were involved. And one of the things that she would say a lot is all the audience is waiting for is the chance to say, me too, me too. (laughs) (laughs) And that was the way she always spoke the phrase, but it's true, right? I trust you more when I know you're like me. I value what you say to me more when I know you're like me, because when I know you're like me and I know you get me, I know you have been there. Yeah. You know, if you've been through a crucible moment, like the ones I went, when I went through the big one that we've talked about, and there are other little ones, then I know that you know where, what it feels like. So what did we do do? We threw a lot of conversation out of the way that we don't have to have. I don't have to be scared to go to you and say, Sandy, look, I'm really struggling because this happened to me and and I don't know what it meant. Yeah. Yeah. And and this is a circle back to our starting conversation, Sandy. But the other thing that helps is you got to find people where you can tell the story. So you get the story released from you. So you figure out what do I need to say and what don't I need to say? Absolutely. When I went through HPS, the first speech I had had seven pages to tell you what I told you earlier in literally two sentences. Yeah. Yeah. And you learn this in HPS as everybody does, right? Exposition, conflict, resolution, and moment of reflection. You know, that's how you tell a story. Well, we need to tell the exposition to ourselves to own it and understand it Mm -hmm. so we can tighten it and tell people what they need to know. So we can reveal the real conflict that will resonate and connect with them, show them there is a solution and help them see how they find that solution for themselves. Mm. And that is a big shift because our mind says it's this much about me, about the, the, the the exposition of what the features facts of facts are of the story. And it's this much about, no, it's this much about the resolution. It's that much about the exposition. So back to how do I know I'm on the other side? When you can tell your story quickly and be comfortable, I have told you all you need to know. Because here's the thing. When I tell you all you need to know, you can contextualize it to you. So when I said the two sentences I said a while ago, Sandy, you could sit there and say, oh, my friend Susan had that. Pro- I, I, I'm not talking about the Susan you've mentioned. You know, yeah. my, my friend Mary Jo had that problem. <laughs> Sorry, Susan Zandler. <laughs> but, you know, you can say, oh. My sister had that issue. Oh, I have a friend who's just going through that. You know what? I'll bet that's part of what's going on with so-and-so. 
And that's the gift we give when we tighten the way we share the story to the part that they need to know that lets them still contextualize for themselves rather than them trying to envision it. Because you'd have trouble envisioning what it's like to be a man if I told you all kinds of details about what happened to me. Mm. The whole reason I wanted to test the word rape is it pretty much communicates to anybody what happened. You don't need a whole lot more. It's four letters. You're done. Or five if you put the past tense on. <laughs> oh, Michael. <laughs> I want to go back in. To this a is the point where the host always goes, why am I talking to this guy? <laughs> no. no, I know why I'm talking to this guy. But two things I want to make sure we go over. Yeah, Let's go back because a lot of people use food mm-hmm. for other emotional issues. When, like you, you mentioned, as soon as you were honest with yourself with a story, is that when you started changing? Did you recognize immediately you were using the food? No, but oh, here's here's the inciting incident. (laughs) So, for those who are listening that aren't familiar, one of the things with the heroic public speaking process is that you end up with this video that's a highlight reel of your speech. So on July 2nd, 2018, I got the highlight reel of my speech. I watched it. Tears began rolling down my face. Not because it was great. Not because it was depressing me. But because at that instant, I realized the person who needs to tell that story is not the guy on the screen because the guy on the screen is not me. The guy on the screen is the medicated me. The guy on the screen is the the person who's weighing 250 pounds, who has no business weighing 250 pounds. It is not the messenger. And when I realized the messenger doesn't fit the message, I realized, okay, what's in the way? And I sat there literally that day. I said, okay, what's in the way? I'm the guy gained and lost the same 35 pounds, sometimes gained 50, then lost 40, then get lost 50, then gained 35, then suddenly gained another 20. You know, I said, why have I done that so many times? And I stumbled upon the reality. Every diet that had worked for me to help me do that included a cheat day. Now, cheat day meant eat whatever the, you use whatever adjective you prefer, you want that day. Well, for me, that was pizza, Mountain Dew cupcakes, and anything else. I said, what would happen if you just tried it once without the cheat day? And so literally, I stopped eating sugar that afternoon. That was it. And just said, cold turkey, we're done with sugar. Now, I basically went, chose a keto plan because it was the easiest plan to me to do that in and make that work for me. Um, Because I'm not trying to advocate keto to people, but it works for me because the fat that is included in the diet satiates me. And I'm not going to lie. The initial 30 days, I really didn't go to the really good fats. I just went to whatever because it was kind of more Atkins-like, if you remember that diet craze. Um, But within six months, you know, I was suddenly down 80 pounds. And now I was the guy that owned that message. Now I was the guy that was comfortable and confident sharing that message. Yeah. Because it, and a part of it may be really, really, really shallow, Sandy, because it may have been that I was concerned. If you look at this fat guy and he's telling you he's okay now, you're going, hey, you're really not that okay, are you? <laughs> I know I had that moment of reflection in my head, yeah. but it was more just, and then I got to, I got to close the story with the other punchline. You know, it took me a while to get used to me because I've yeah. been looking at me the other way a long time. 
Yeah. And in our house, the way our house is laid out, when you walk out of our master bedroom into the bathroom, there is a mirror directly in front of you. And one day I turned the corner and I looked in that mirror and those tears that I had on July 2nd, 2018 came back to me because that's the guy. Yeah. That and and you know in the therapy processes I'd gone through and in me in my own head in my story, I used to say this all the time. And those people in that really small circle I mentioned earlier knew this. I kept saying, "I just want to find me again." Mm -hmm. And for a long time, I didn't know why me disappeared because I didn't acknowledge it. That was the day I found me again. Mm -hmm. And to my point I made earlier about how you walk the planet differently, how you see yourself differently. When that moment occurs, that aura completely and dramatically changes, and these people begin showing up in your life in a powerful way, and they invite you to help them. They almost, when I say beg, I don't mean that in like hands and knees begging. It's just, it's like, I want to know, you know, there's something, you know, and the people who knew me from the past, there's something different about you. Yeah, there is. I'm me again. I'm not the guy who hid for most of my adult life from who I was. I'm not the guy out there running going, please give me another award. Make me feel like I have value because I think I'm worthless. Mm. I'm not the guy going, I'm going to prove to you I can do it because I just love the challenge and I want to prove that I'm better. I don't have to do that anymore. And my point is, I so wish I could have gotten there 20 years ago yeah. because of the impact I could have created on so many other people. And I'm just, I'm not going to let go of this. I'm here to do this and I'm going to help as many people as I can, as long as I get the privilege of doing it. So you don't have to go through that. And here's the reality I have discovered. A lot of people hit this wall between 33 and 43 or 35 and 45. Mm. And some it's not until 50 or 55, but you know, they start to see it. I want to have the stuff out there. I mean, the reason I'm writing a book is I want the book to be there that you can land on your desk at 35 or in your house at 35 and make you go, oh, I need to go do this work. Yeah. Michael. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm so happy for you. I'm Thank so you. happy Thank for you. you. Thank you. I really am. And I always believe you're right where you're supposed to be. I believe so much in perfect timing. When people say, well, I wish I, I'm like, yeah, you weren't supposed to know what you know now. Exactly right. So I do want to make sure we, we're not going to get to all the questions <laughs> and okay, they can find you and reach out to you. But the one question that kept coming up over and over again was when you told your story, and I can relate to this, did you tell it first to close friends or family who didn't know because you do say that you didn't tell it because they said they would kill you mm -hmm. so then how did you tell the close friends and family or did you tell the world first i told the world first i told uh, the world first because you know i mean i let's exclude my wife from that picture because obviously i told her yeah um but i was more driven to help the people I encountered who were struggling in a professional context and the people that I could just sense needed to hear it. Mm. Um, and I wanted to make sure that, cause you know, one of the things, so there, there's another, let me make this a really brief story. So I'm sitting in a mastermind group. I'm in Phoenix, Arizona, the facilitator, it's my, my day in the hot seat. And he starts pushing me on. I still don't understand why this matters so much to you. 
And it gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And then he finally says, okay, let's ask the hard question. If you, since this does matter, why aren't you doing this? And I answered the question by saying, I don't know that I can make money doing this. And he said, well, I have a more brutal question, but I'm going to ask you. He said, if you could change one person's life, would it be worth it? I said, absolutely. Mm. He said, well, then why don't you get out there and do it? And then we moved on to the next person. Yeah. Yeah. And that made me become, okay, who's the person? And that's the, the story of the woman I told you. It's like, oh, that's the person I see. So, you know, it took me two years to test that. But when I tested it, I discovered it changed everything. And then, you know, HPS gave me this other world, you know, you know, with my role, I get to play there now as a teaching fellow, I get to interact with everybody in every grad class. And it has become such a door opener to helping people unlock something within themselves that that's where most of my sharing of this occurs. Now I have a handful of close friends that I've shared this with. I've been pretty open, um, in some of my Facebook posts that a broader audience of my friends and connections would read. Um, but I'm also driven by the fact that I think having had my life transformed, I want to help those people who are driven to transform more lives. Because if I can help you and you are then able to help another hundred people and 10% of those help another hundred people and 10% of those help another hundred people, we start to make a dent in this universe of troubled yeah. people yeah, that, that are troubled because they haven't contextualized something that happened to them and figured out what it meant in a way that's allowing them to use it for something good. Yeah. And I think our world has benefited so much by people who have stepped up past very difficult circumstances and used what they, the lessons they earned for something good. You know, Nelson Mandela might be a really good example as many, many other people, you know, Martin Luther King, you know, there are so many cases of that. And so that's always been the things that's resonated with me. Mm. You know, who do I need to talk to, to help them? Not because I don't care about the family and friends, but I also have a fairly small group of family and friends. You know, I mean, at this point, you know, the only family that still exists is me and the two half siblings I met <laughs> last, <laughs> last year that I didn't know I had because <laughs> I was adopted, you know. Um, but so that's, that's the path I chose. <laughs> what? <laughs> you didn't know that? <laughs> So that's it. So I'm going to go with this question at the end because it's okay. big. This, <laughs> this I'm laughing because the others haven't exactly been simple, but, <laughs> but I love it. So let's go. <laughs> they weren't simple, but this young lady wants to tell her story, but her parents don't know. Mm -hmm. Been through that one more than once. <laughs> And so she wanted your advice because she really wants to tell her story. Mm -hmm. But should she wait to her parents pass? Because she's not sure if they could handle it and or wonder why she didn't tell them before. Big question. Well, That's I mean, big question. It is, Sandy. And it's a question that lands home. And, you know, thank thank you for asking it. Whoever asked it. Um this is another one of those moments where, you know, okay, the person shows up because <laughs> that's exactly where I was. The reason mm -hmm. I didn't deal with it till I started to deal with it was because I didn't, I had never told my parents. Uh, I mean, there's another irony in my story, right? The police officer who would have investigated had a case been brought would have been my father. Oh. Now to be clear, my father was not involved in what happened to me. So don't, yeah, I don't yeah. want that inference to happen. 
But so I know, I know exactly what that feels like, you know, and first of all, I feel your pain and, you know, proud of you for asking the question because it's a hard question to ask and even acknowledge. Um, obviously it's also not a question I'm hearing for the first time. Ah, okay. There have been students I've worked with in our world at HPS, um, that have had that, that, um, there's something that in their story, they've never told anyone. They want to talk about it for the same reason that I think you and I both care about telling our deeper stories, which is to help other people. Yeah. And at the same time are fearful of telling it for fear of how it will impact their parents. Um, to my illustration of people will show up, an individual sat next to me at lunch at HPS one day, a few years back. We're about five minutes into a conversation and she looks at me and says, you know something? What I just told you, there's only three people on the planet that know you, me, and my coach mm. as an athlete. And she said, that's what's in my way. I don't know how to tell the story because my parents don't know. And I don't want them to feel responsible or guilty yeah. or like I'm blaming them or any of that. Um, and that's a hard one. It's a hard now, one. You know, one of the things that that person chose was a path of sharing the insight she gleaned from her experience without getting into any deep detail about it and did it very effectively. And it would be inappropriate for me to share how she does that because that's her story to tell, not yeah. mine. Um, but I think it is worth the work. You know, to I finally told my father about five or six years before his death, he was at that point already starting to enter the Alzheimer's issues that he had, not deeply. Um, it was a difficult moment. And at the same time, it was a moment that clearly he didn't know how to process. Um, and if anything, it just fueled me that I was going to do it. And it was right about the time all this was that I was starting to really think mm. about this. And I started thinking about this back in 2010. It took me five years to take action. But I think I probably told him around 2008, something like that. Um, and, and, and this is the only advice I can give. You know, it, it's number one. If you decide to tell them first, just don't have expectations of how they should react. I don't think my father reacted the way I thought he should. Um, I think you may know I did this little writing exercise back in November and wrote 77,000 words towards the book I'm working on, which don't worry, folks, they won't all be in the book. Um <laughs> But I had a moment in that writing, Sandy, where by allowing myself to write through that, yeah, I suddenly tapped into the anger I had not acknowledged that I felt towards his lack of reaction to that. And at the same time, it opened this other door. So I'm going to encourage her to do this and anyone else who may be thinking about this. Flip the perspective and ask you, how would I respond if my child told me that? How yeah. would I feel? Because, you know, what's the gut reality? All of us would feel guilty. All of us would feel we failed our child. Some of us might feel responsible for having brought that person into. So if you, if you take my specific scenario, right, this person that was involved in doing this to me was living in the family farmhouse that my father had rented to them. Mm. So imagine the responsibility feelings that he had oof, 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 at that moment, like, oh, my gosh, you know. And I think we have to think through that a little bit. And, you know, my way of doing that is you write through it. Yeah. You know, and, and one of the, one of the, I'm going to give a tip, Sandy, I think can help a lot of people in everything we've talked about today. Uh, there's a book called Chatter, and I forget the author's last name. His first name is, I think, 
I don't even remember his first name at the moment. Um, but in the book Chatter, he introduces this concept that he calls distanced self-talk. And so the idea is if Sandy is journaling or writing through something mm-hmm. and she's writing it in terms of, well, let me take me instead of putting it on you. So if I'm writing something about trying to figure something out, right, and I'm writing it as, well, I feel this way or I'm feeling this, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to do it differently than I would speak to Sandy if Sandy came to me and said, I'm struggling with this. Because what I would say was, well, Sandy, what you need to think about is this and this and this. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you, so I now journal a lot by asking the question, why is Michael so frustrated about this? Why is Michael struggling to figure this out? Mm. What's making Michael so anxious about this situation? It's a game changer. Yeah. So I share that because in the the response to the question the woman asked, journal through it or write through it in terms of how would my parents feel? How would, and maybe you use whatever names you use for them, or maybe you use their real name. You know, how would Sandy feel if I told her this? Yeah. Why would she be upset? Why might she be happy? Why might she be uncomfortable? Or how might she be uncomfortable? Mm-hmm. How can I share it with her in a way that helps her realize I'm sharing it because I need her support? What mm-hmm. kind of support do I need from Sandy? You with, from, see where I'm coming from? Yes, absolutely. If you can take that approach, it detaches you kind of from the outcome and from the process. You get out of beat yourself up mode, which we're all masterful at. And you invite yourself to see it as though you were helping a friend. Mm -hmm. And so I would argue that's a good first step for her to get started right through it from the perspective of how would, how would they feel not from the perspective how do I want them to feel? How do I believe they would feel? And then maybe detached, continue that process. So let's just pretend her name is Tina. Why is Tina afraid to tell her parents? What is Tina concerned about in terms of how her parents will react? How might Tina's parents actually be supportive when she did tell them? How can Tina be prepared for the inherent emotional moments that are going to occur as she does tell them? What should Tina actually tell them? And this goes back to our point about story. How much exposition do they need? Do they need to know who it was? Do they need to know where it was? Do they need to know when it was? Do they simply need to know something happened? Yeah. And it changed me. Yeah. And if they probe it, maybe one of the things that she decides is, I don't want to go into the details of this. I just want you to understand this happened to me at this moment in time. It has been in my way and I'm going to start talking about it. Good point. I love that. That's the best I've got off the top of my head. Yeah. And by the way, just so everyone knows, Michael and I did not talk ahead of time because <laughs> they know I'm a big, big believer no, we didn't. of all types of journaling and how helpful it could be. Look, I believe the thing in most people's way, they don't take the effort to write through things. Yeah. I think writing through things is the single most powerful path on the planet. And if you don't like to write, then get yourself a dictation app and talk. Because that voice in your head is never stopping anyway. So let it get out. Yeah. I call it brain drain, scribble, scrabble, or Mm -hmm. reset. And I love it. Yeah. 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 Michael, I really am so happy we figured this out. Me too. It's really, I know, going to resonate with so many of my viewers and listeners. But before we go, 
tell us what you do for fun. What kind of hobby do you have? What do you do? I cook. My, My whole approach to life is this, Sandy. I think life should be filled with lots of little tastes of stuff, if that makes sense. You know, I, I want to drink in all the little pieces, right? I'm the guy who goes and looks at this big picture and I hone in on this one little piece and go, look at that area right there. That is freaking amazing. Yeah. So, you know, when I cook, cooking became my, my I, I learned to cook at the, um, at the arm of my grandmother. Oh. My, my grandmother, my grandmother was my safe space. She lived literally in the house next door uh, in the country. So I actually went outside as opposed to a sidewalk to get there. Um, but that was my refuge. I would go there and we'd bake cookies or we'd make cakes or we'd cook something else. And that got me really intrigued about cooking and cooking became sort of my escape. It was the way I could go in. I could be myself. I could be creative. I was much more creative than I think people thought men should be or boys should be at that, you know? And so it it was, and it was also the safe creative space, right? Because it was not being on stage. It wasn't in front of other people. It was relatively private. Um, My desire when I make you a meal is for you to feel an explosion of flavor in your mouth where you can't identify what it is, but you go, I love that. Yeah. I also want it to be, I want the freedom for you to say, that was fantastic. And you give me the recipe and for you to understand, I'm going to say no, because that's how I felt like making it today. Come tomorrow, I'll make it slightly differently because I like the experimentation. So, you know, my two passions in that regard, one, I do a lot of meat smoking, you know, barbecue work. um, And I I also do a lot of other, I do all the cooking in the house, basically. And then I have this hobby of barrel aging cocktails because it is another interesting way where you buy these little three liter barrels and you put beverages in them and you let them get exposed to the char and you adjust the flavors as they go through the process. And it's just something I enjoy doing. And so those are kind of my two main hobbies that I have. My other one is cycling. Uh, I used to ride between 1500 and 2000 miles a year that slacked off a little bit last year because of a combination of weather and my wife got an e-bike. So our journeys became more adventurous for us than just me proving myself to myself. (laughs) Well, you know, that, that wasn't important to me for a while. It's not as important now, (laughs) (laughs) but that's, that's what I do for fun. You know, I mean, it's a, it's where the passion is. So I love to invite a handful of people over and I'll, I'll, so for example, in June, I I used to, I ran the Delaware 4-H camp program for 10 years. Um, And now I cook dinner for the counselors the night before the camp starts every, the two weeks of camp starts. So they'll come to my backyard, I'll barbecue dinner for them. um, And then we'll do a little short training session and they'll go off with their new leader who is someone I trained, which is one of my happiest moments of life is watching someone I've trained become the person doing what I used to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that's, that's the main hobby. And, and it keeps me busy because I do it all the time. I, I'm at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I'm on duty here at the house. So, and I yeah, work I, out of the house. So on, I think Facebook, I you were, you showed a meal and I know everyone's like, I want to be invited. <laughs> I want to come to dinner. Well, I had the privilege of having Michael and Amy here for dinner yeah. last August. Yeah. yeah. And, and then Michael was kind enough to say in class one day, he said, look, if he ever invites you to go to his house for barbecue, don't walk, <laughs> run, <laughs> which was good. <laughs> it's amazing. All right, Michael, we have to wrap up before. Yes, we do- I know. I- 
Tell us that's okay. I loved every minute of it. I'm not cutting a thing. So where can we find you? How can they reach you? They so, so my dated website, which honestly was just put back up because I did this little three-year gig helping someone build a leadership development program and pulled all my branding stuff down because I didn't need the distractions. It's just at michaelhudson.com. Okay. Um, but you can reach me and, and, and any of your reader, if anybody's listening and you know, you, you've got something you want to share, just email me. It's michael at michaelhudson.com. I will respond. You know, I would be honored to hear your story in whatever degree you're interested in sharing it. You know, um, I don't want to pretend I have all the answers. As I say, I'm not a therapist. And I think therapists and counselors and so forth are very important in this process. But feel free to reach out. You know, the other thing, you know, I tend to do is I do a lot of, you know, conversations with people to help them figure out how to get started. What's my first step? Yeah. You know, yeah. and so, you know, you'll certainly have information about how they can reach me for that. But don't hesitate to, you know, if you just want to email me and say, hey, this this helped me this way or this made me ask this question. I'd love to hear it because, you know, my big purpose right now in life is writing a book, a book mm-hmm. that's going to transform the lives of people who are ready to share their story. And anyone that shares anything with me, it helps me understand how to frame it to help you. So if yeah. you heard something today you didn't understand, let me know so I know it wasn't clear. Yeah. If you heard something, they go, well, I don't agree with that. I think it's actually this. Fantastic. Let me know. <laughs> the beauty the beauty of this, and this goes back, this, you know, Sandy, let's leave this as a takeaway point. Doing this work frees you from the outcome in a way you've never been free before. Mm. You are now open to someone saying, well, that didn't work for me. Oh, fascinating. Tell me why. Help me understand that. Because you're not so tied because you're not chasing the applause, the accolades, and the awards, and the recognition because you're comfortable. This is what I'm supposed to be doing right now because it fully aligns with my purpose and my passion. Yeah. And when you're there, that's freeing. And that's where I want people to get to. And I want you to get there sooner in your life, sooner in your life rather than later. Yeah. So Michael Hudson in the house. (laughs) My let's keep it real people. I know the time has come. I can hear that they let my dog out. They think, Dawson's like share, like, rate. You know, there's people that are definitely going to be inspired. Michael and I will totally, totally appreciate that. And until next time, you know what I'm going to say. Thanks, Michael, and toodles. Thanks for listening. Be sure to share and subscribe if you enjoyed the show. And remember, keep spreading the positive.